Welcome to Web3 with A6NZ, a show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A6NZ Crypto. That includes me, your host, Sonal. This show is for anyone, whether developer, artist, community leader, startup entrepreneur, or other builder, seeking to understand and go deeper on all things crypto and Web3 towards a decentralized, community-owned, and creator-owned internet. Speaking of... This week's episode digs deeper into NFTs, focusing especially on security and addressing also a few very common myths and misconceptions along the way. It builds on a more basic NFTs explained episode from 2021 on the A6NC podcast, which I ran previously, that includes me and two close friends of A6NC Crypto breaking down everything you need or want to know about NFTs, but it's separate from this one. In this episode, we go into specifics on what exactly is in the NFT or around the NFT, what exactly is in the smart contract and the metadata and more before we dig into all the related security topics, including some best practices at various levels and discuss the evolution of NFTs across applications and mediums, including dynamic NFTs for art to identity to experiences. Our expert guests in this casual hallway jam with me are two A6NZ Crypto team members, Michael Blau, an engineering partner at A6NZ Crypto, who spends his time between investing and also working on new protocols, simulations, and tools. For instance, he recently released, after this episode was recorded, a tool for detecting metamorphic smart contracts that can be changed even if seemingly immutable, as well as a tool that detects sleep minting to fake provenance and ownership. You can find those at a6nzcrypto.com. Michael is also known by his NFT artist alias as Exor. His most recent works artistically include a dynamic NFT MEV army and ASCII art that visually represents and incorporates different Ethereum technologies within the artworks. Then we also have Nassim Edekuak, who is the Chief Information Security Officer at A6NZ Crypto and was previously at Facebook Blockchain, where he worked on all the security infrastructure and custody there, along with his co-worker Riaz, who joined A6NZ Crypto as CTO. Prior to that, Nassim worked in R&D, security, key management, and more at Anchorage, and before that, Docker and at Apple. And Nassim also released a personal NFT project after this episode was recorded called Rebels by Night, a PFP collection of dynamic NFTs aimed at on-chain customization. As a reminder, none of the following is investment, business, tax, or legal advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. We begin the conversation for the first 10 minutes with some quick context on NFTs, redefining it more specifically beyond as just a non-fungible token, then go into NFT security, and then discuss trends and applications of interest now and ahead. So can you guys just quickly break down for me like what is actually in the smart contract around an NFT? Because this is something that I think there's a lot of misconceptions about. Can you guys just quickly give an overview of that? Sure. The analogy that I use is you have this one smart contract, which you could think of as a bucket. And on one side of the bucket, you have like an Excel spreadsheet, which keeps track of an address or a wallet address, and then a token ID or an NFT token ID. Mm-hmm. And if you think about like an Excel spreadsheet, each row is, if it's your address, in the same row as the NFT token ID, that means that you own it. So that's like one side of the smart contract. The other side of the smart contract is arbitrary functionality or code that defines the rules of how this asset or token is transferred. So if I wanted to transfer this NFT to NAS, what really happens under the hood is it's just shuffling rows on this Excel spreadsheet, but the code is actually doing that. And the code will do things like check to see do I really own the token that I'm trying to transfer? Can NAS, is he able to actually receive this token? Or code that lets me check to see who owns token number one. And it's code that looks into the Excel spreadsheet and then will return back out the owner. So mm. it's basically a spreadsheet, a record, and then code that facilitates how that record is updated. So the other way that I've heard it defined, this is from Chris Dixon, founder of A6NZ Crypto, is that an NFT is simply a blockchain-based record that uniquely represent pieces of media. And that media can be anything digital, including art, videos, music, GIFs, I will not say GIFs, games, text, memes, and just any code, frankly. So the interesting part about NFTs is that if you think about NFTs as there is this token identifier that actually identifies the NFT itself, but the content of the NFT can be anything anything that we think about. Right now, we focus a lot on kind of like the visual aspects of it, but it could be music, it could be code, it could be 
websites, entire websites. It can be anything like rich media content or other things like property deeds. But the NFT is actually the envelope plus the data itself. Mm. Think about emails. The email is not just the content of what Nas sent to Michael Blatt, right? It is also all the, the metadata that comes with it to ensure who actually sent the email, who is actually receiving the email. Was there any security property encryption? Who actually validated all these properties? What is the format? And so many things, right? And so it's important to keep in mind that NFTs are not just the end content that is delivered to the user, but it's also this rich metadata all around it that provides a lot of context that is essential to the NFT itself. And so this is a very simple system, but the guarantees that are provided by the blockchain around permissions and immutability really of this code really gives very strong properties. And we could have implemented NFTs in a bunch of other ways without blockchain. But the reality is that the blockchain gives us the properties of immutability and basically like trust in the system and the mapping that we need in order to build products at scale without any sorts of truth that is centralized. By the way, by context, you mean stuff like the traits and other details or like what specifically when you think of the context? Exactly. It could be the traits. It could be, if you think about emails, sending I'm down is not going to mean the same based on like if you're replying from a certain source address to another recipient. The recipient changing will actually impact the meaning of the message right. that you're sending. And it's the same with NFTs. With NFTs, having different traits obviously can mean different things, but you can actually add anything to the metadata, right? You're free to populate the metadata of the NFT with any type of information. It could be source and recipient, just like emails. It could be an encryption envelope around it that defines who's able to decrypt it. It can be really anything uh, ranging from when this thing was created, when this thing was modified. Maybe it has several versions, right? Maybe you're storing the version zero and the last version of some piece of data. And so keep that in mind as an entire space that we have this envelope that we can modify at will to provide more and more context around the data. And I really hope that we're all going to try to <laughs> experiment more and more what we can do with it. Before we go into what you just mentioned, us, you know, about the experiments, and then we'll go into the security, let's really quickly chat more about what is and isn't in the smart contract, including that notion that you can encode functionality like secondary royalties for creators. So a smart contract allows you to both store one of these limited digital assets, tokens, or NFTs, but it also allows you to, like you said, encode other functionality around it. However, it is a common misconception in the NFT community that the smart contract itself facilitates secondary royalties to creators. Actually, that is not the case. Rather, secondary royalties are honored by the marketplace that the NFT trades on. I thought the beauty of an NFT is that if something gets sold or resold, and currently in the art market, to use an example, artists never get the secondary royalties unless there's some way they know. But because of the ability to track provenance and I thought encode that information into a smart contract, that is how that guarantee is made. But you are saying that that guarantee is actually provided by the marketplace. Correct. So technically speaking, you could do some over-the-counter trade of an NFT. Like I could trade an NFT with NOS and say, NOS, I'll send you one NFT and you can send me two ETH. And that transaction, 0% of that two ETH will go to a creator. It will go 100% to NOS. And the reason why that is, is there are actually a lot of reasons, but like two of them, and I'll let Nas add on as well, is what happens in a situation where, let's say I own an NFT in like my MetaMask wallet, but I want to transfer it to my hardware wallet or my ledger. Well, that transfer of the NFT is still to myself. I'm not actually selling it. But if you put a limit or a percentage fee every time an NFT transfers, which is how it would have to work, then basically I would be paying the artist the fee even when I'm transferring it with myself. Oh, that's great. Not great, but yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, And the second point, and there's a caveat to this one, is that the NFTs are smart contracts and creators in the space don't always actually have ownership over those smart contracts. 
And what that means is that if, for example, you did want to create an NFT where indeed every time it transferred, the smart contract collected a royalty, in order for the creator to go and withdraw those royalties from the smart contract, because the royalties would accrue within a smart contract, that means that the NFT creator would have to have ownership over that smart contract. And oftentimes when you're creating NFTs at scale, creators don't actually have on-chain ownership over those smart contracts. Marketplaces do, or there is no owner at all. So it's kind of like a low-level specification of the smart contract that would make it challenging. Michael covered it well. Obviously, smart contracts are code and can make the code do a lot of things, including this. But this is just an extremely complex thing to do. And so current systems are just for the sake of end user friendliness and scalability and so on, are not designed to have that natively. But there are some standards that are part of the NFT specifications that enable marketplaces to query the contract to request how many royalties should I apply as a marketplace. Great. Before we talk about the security standards and the trade-offs between scale and usability, as you just mentioned, the role of marketplaces and others in the ecosystem, I'd actually love to hear from you guys. How would you even break this topic down, like conceptually? I mean, it's a big topic. There's lots we could cover for many episodes. But, you know, as an overview, what framework should we even use to talk about this, the topic itself? So the way that I sort of think about NFTs in general, and you can kind of tackle each, is this framework that I like to call the NFT stack. And you can go through each component of the stack and dissect the security implications of each. I'll give you the high-level overview of what it is. So the very first level is just simply the art, the artist or the creator coming up with some media type. So that's an image, that's a 3D file, that's a website, it's a piece of code, whatever it might be, whatever the media content is. Okay, mm-hmm. that's step one. Step two would be the actual smart contract that's hosting this NFT, that's hosting any of the metadata for the NFT, that's hosting the functionality of how this NFT should be traded. That's the next layer of the stack. Then comes the primary issuance of the NFT. So how does a user purchase or acquire the NFT? Is it free? Is it paid? Is there an auction mechanic? Is it on a centralized platform? Is it in a smart contract, et cetera? The next part comes is the secondary marketplace. So where does this NFT be traded after the fact if it can be traded after the fact? And then the final component, which is sort of like beyond, is token gating. Now that you own this token, what do you do with it? How is it used across platforms and as you move from website to website in Web3 or DAP to DAP, whether that's Discord or Instagram or Twitter, how does this NFT connect to that application and how is it used there? So I call that the token gating stage. Yep. And that's like my high-level stack. Probably the most important one really is the, the smart contract level, which is the first one, and the security implications there. I think that this has the right level of granularity. I tend to segment things as for the user across different types of brand directions. Like what are the threats that they're exposed to? What is their attack surface basically looking like? Same thing for like a marketplace, same thing for the creator or the smart contract itself, which is almost like a different party at this point. I think what we should do then is let's go down the vertical stack that Michael just outlined, which is kind of a life cycle of an NFT in almost a linear way. And then let's take a bit more of a horizontal tack across all the parties as you mentioned, whether user or creator marketplace, and then also bring in some of the other key trends that may come in and just like attack it that way. That's great. So Michael, you said the most important is a smart contract and it's like the first step. But in fact, the first step is really like the art or the asset itself. So super quick, is there anything security related at this level to be aware of? Whether the art is a image, a piece of music or whatever, that creative artifact. 100%. Actually, and... I know Nas has a lot to say on the topic as well, but I'll, I'll kind of give yes. the high level view, which is <laughs> very much so. <laughs> which is that, like we said before, an NFT can point to any media. And what happens if that media is a website or an SVG, which is like a common format for on chain artwork? Yeah, especially generative artwork. Exactly. Like these media files can and do contain executable code, right? And all of a sudden you can run into a situation where When you have like a display layer, so marketplace or a wallet that's showing you your NFT collection, the application, the client side, the front end is reading in this dynamic file, like an HTML file or an executable file. And it's executing that code in your browser to render an image. And that means that you have code coming in from the blockchain that you're not aware of executing on your local machine. 
which of course could have a lot of security implications. Yes. So these are things that we actually saw in the wild, like actually happen. And this is not a new problem, right? The email providers and Facebook and other companies have been displaying images for a very long time, very complex media types that oftentimes require code execution in order to perform as expected, whether that's rendering an image, a video, executing a code in order to get sound, like HTML pages and so on. And as we are trying to develop art that gets more dynamic and brings more information, execution of code becomes part of the equation. And so SVGs, for example, allowing you to execute JavaScript and so on, can, if not properly contained by whichever layer actually does the display, can actually very well escape their sandbox environment and perform malicious action, potentially make a request to MetaMask to sign a transaction or like pop up to request to sign a transaction that could activate your wallet and so on. And so it is the responsibility of obviously marketplaces to check that, but it is also the responsibility for the creators to actually make safe content available to their users. And are there any ways to protect people here? Because just to really ground this for people, when you guys say SVGs, that's like a scalable vector graphic. It's been around since like the late 90s. It's nothing new. And I'm really glad you pointed that out, Nas, because this is actually not technically a new problem. What's interesting here, though, is part of the opportunity here is not just like animated GIFs and video and rendering HTML pages, but the dynamism of NFTs is, I think, incredibly interesting as well, because to me, it's really about creating this new world of generative artists. Like generative art has been around for decades and I'm a huge consumer and fan of it. But there's an argument being made right now that now it's almost like it's a blockchain native format that's like really finding its moment. So can you say more about this? Because this has implications for possibilities of what we can do with NFTs. What can creators do? What can platforms do? What can MetaMask do to make this a little bit better for people? Yeah, so there is this process called sanitization, input sanitization, which is basically taking any form of input that is provided by a user and modify it and edit it in a way that makes it non-malicious. So you're basically proactively removing certain capabilities, for example, in the case of SVG, doing certain HTML or JavaScript actions that could allow it to escape the safe environment. And it is going to be the responsibility from marketplaces and wallets and so on to do a better job at sanitizing various types of media, right? Right. And we know that this is a very hard problem because at the end of the day, when you look at email providers, I think email providers are actually one of the best examples. They're transmitting and delivering to you any type of data. They do malware analysis. They actually do a lot of verification on the data that is shared with you prior to actually allowing you to opening it, right? Because they have your safety in mind. And it is going to be the same for every single players that is responsible for delivering you this data, marketplaces and experience providers, metaverses, and so on. I mean, for me, the email analogy really resonates because I think of the degree of familiarity people have with email. A lot of us are very savvy with email, but then I think about my parents they can't tell the difference between like a phishing scam or an email that has malicious code that could execute in it. So the providers doing this for them is hugely valuable. And I think we have a similar issue with NFTs. Yeah, the only like point to that add is something that's almost a little bit scarier with NFTs than, than with something like email is that you could definitely have a situation where somebody will airdrop you an NFT that has this malicious functionality, but that NFT is non-transferable. So you couldn't even get it out of your wallet if you oh, wanted to, right? Damn. And it's there forever. And every website that ever reads your wallet data always needs to be aware of these assets and how to exactly what Nas said is sanitize them. The other point, it's not so much about security, but it, it's about how you mentioned how this idea of generative art is taking off with NFTs in a different way. And I think the reason for that is because oftentimes NFT assets are not actually stored on the blockchain where like your token is stored on the blockchain but the actual media file and metadata is stored on some decentralized yep. hosting service, such as like IPFS or Arweave. And by the way, the reason for that is because if you were to like store a full image on the blockchain, that would be very expensive. That'd be a lot of a gas cost. However, when you have something that's generative, you're not actually necessarily storing a whole image. Rather, you're storing a piece of code that sort of 
unwraps and generates itself on demand to show you an image. And that's, I think, why that's taken off with NFTs because you can all of a sudden actually store quote-unquote images on chain, but you're really just storing the generative code, which is really cool. I'm so glad you said that. I'm just a huge, passionate consumer fan. Same. Is there anything more to add on this first layer or this linear phase of the NFT stack, you know, before we talk about the smart contract itself? Yeah. Stuff that we're starting to be very concerned about is leaking any form of art or metadata about the drop even before it actually happens, because it actually allows you to make a lot of educated decisions, basically insider knowledge about like what is generated what are the trades and so on. And having this information, even like regardless of the blockchain ahead of time is extremely valuable. And we've seen that in the leak of information prior to highly anticipated drops. Mm-hmm. And so it's very critical to also be conscious as a creator that the content that you're creating, the metadata may actually be extremely valuable even without being on the blockchain anywhere, right? And sometimes taking the proper steps to even encrypt it if you have like a highly anticipated drops, it is very important because people will want to try to get this information before the rest of the NFT space. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, to be honest, it feels like there's a bit of a cash 22 there because on one hand, part of the community building purpose, because you know we're talking about these assets as if they're just like living in an isolated ecosystem and clearly they're not. Like you both have your own personal NFT projects, several, in fact. And a big component of that is a community building. And some of that excitement of the high demand launches is around that community building. And so it's not just a credit rug pull. It's really just that's the idea there. And I wonder if you guys have thoughts on how just as related to the security issue, what people should be thinking about here besides simply encrypting some of the details. Because part of the point is marketing, to be clear. So I just want to make sure we address that. Yeah, this is a hard one at least in my own personal experience, when it comes to like hiding the metadata and strategies around that, it oftentimes was a combination of Web 2 and Web 3 technology, Mm. where a huge component of Web 3 technology, which is actually what makes this problem arise in the first place, is exactly what Nath was saying, is if someone tried hard enough, all the data on these decentralized storage platforms or the blockchain is publicly available. Yes. So if you wanted to hide it, you do need some Web 2 component, right? There needs to be like a centralized server at some point in the process to hide this data. And what ends up happening in that situation, just speaking from personal experience, is the technology at its current state is probably not developed enough yet to be able to beautifully and smoothly link Web 2 and Web 3, especially when you have situations where, let's say it's a super high demand mint and you're hosting your, your files on a small server that you just kind of spun up on AWS with not a lot of scaling, that server can very easily crash when you have hundreds of thousands of people trying to make your NFT at once and it's kind of trying to connect to your server and then the blockchain and then the server needs to know when it's been minted to make the NFT available and they're communicating back and forth. And you kind of get this like weird knot of Web 2 and Web 3, which could lead to some bad user experiences. Yeah, it just means we're early, but that's a very nice analogy of like that tangled knot. Let's go into the next layer of the stack, which is a smart contract and all the functionality that is encoded within that. And so let's talk about security at that level. For this one, there are just so many things that pertain to the smart contracts themselves, right? You can think about flawed smart contracts. You can think about malicious smart contracts. You can think of malicious NFT distribution that actually goes through the smart contract. And sometimes it is required for the smart contract to have features directly inside the code that enforce the randomness of the distribution and other properties. And also the contracts themselves need also to be resistant to things like botting and a few other things. Yeah, I totally agree. And the way that I sort of think about it is like, the way we started this whole podcast is talking about how we have this NFT that is a token and then functionality to manage how that token is transferred amongst different users. Mm -hmm. And That functionality, like just that the storage of a number token identifier and the transferring functionality, that is pretty much standard. I mean, you can go right now and use the standard ERC721 or 1155 contracts from Open Zeppelin that are highly audited and secure and put that on the blockchain and you will have an NFT that functions and is secure and works. However, that is very different from this other functionality, which 
might be for the initial primary sale of an NFT or like an initial drop, yeah, which has different mechanics. And all of a sudden you're collecting money. You may have an auction mechanism. You want civil resistance. Like Nash was saying, you don't want bots coming in and minting out an NFT before other people. And you have all this extra functionality that's really only used once, right? It's only used for this initial launch of the NFT and keeping those two things separate. So if we take for granted that the token and the ability to transfer it, that code is already audited, it exists, that's there. We can be sure that our tokens are going to be secure. And then also we could maybe then focus on the side of the actual mint and the launch and where hacks and security vulnerabilities can happen there is like an interesting way to think about it. Cool. So let's break it down that way. And you can actually leave off a lot of details about auction design for Web3 because for the listeners, in case you missed it, we went deep into incentive and mechanism and market design and more in episode three with Tim Roughgarden and Scott Commoners, if you want to check out that episode. So take it away, Michael. Okay. So like, let's focus on actually users coming to your smart contract to mint an NFT. And this is also making an assumption that you're not selling this NFT on a third-party marketplace that is totally centralized. You're actually selling it directly through a smart contract, right. which is what a majority of NFT mints are using today. So you have a few issues here. For starters, I guess, and this is a big topic, let's talk about like bots, right? So let's say you have a 10K NFT project and you want the ability for someone to mint, like each person can mint two and that's about it. Like each person can mint two and they're going to pay the smart contract money in order to mint two NFTs at a time. Now that sounds pretty simple. But we also know that there are a lot of other components of the crypto ecosystem, such as flashbots or MEV, where you could have bots and miners coming in and front-running other users and minting out NFTs before the actual normal user, who might be honest, just is going to come about and mint it through their MetaMask. Like, they will completely be beat out, right? Right. How do you address this, by the way? Well, there are a lot of ways, but I'm just kind of talking about one mechanism for this. But one is a situation where a user, when they mint an NFT to a smart contract, not only do they specify how many they want to purchase and, of course, send the amount of money that they want to spend, but also they provide a cryptographic signature. And that cryptographic signature that is provided to the smart contract could only be generated by, let's say, the front end that a user might go to on their browser to mint the NFT. And when you do this, you prevent bots who are just sitting in the transaction mempool, watching things happen and trying to snipe NFT mints who don't have any idea of what the website is, they would never be able to actually front run because they don't even know what that signature is because they didn't even visit the website in the first place. So these are two things that you could do to prevent the bot. Now, on the whitelist side, obviously, we have a whitelist and can only allow certain people to mint. That, of course, prevents bots from coming just by the simple nature that only a select set of addresses are allowed to come and mint an NFT. But just like this idea that a bot could come in and capture a lot of the volume of an NFT is really dangerous because now you have the situation where a bot might accumulate like hundreds of NFTs, which could be a huge percentage of the supply, immediately turn around on a secondary market and dump them. And all of a sudden, it just creates this really bad way to start off of building a community. We've actually seen body ruin quite a few drops, right? So it's kind of like the botting through smart contracts as mentors that you basically have smart contracts that themselves create a bunch of addresses, send funds to them, and then have all of them send transactions to mint. And you basically have now like a single smart contract that managed to mint 300, 400, 500 NFTs plus. Or you have actual accounts that can mint directly to the contract without going to a backer. And so... This is like an interesting trade-off because now you're making the mint more expensive. To every single security feature that you're adding, you're actually also increasing the complexity of the user experience throughout the mint. Or it could be even from a financial standpoint, the amount of gas fees that people pay. And so I think that trying to hit the right trade-off is often a bit hard, even including Web2 to secure a drop. Then you're forcing them to basically either authenticate or just prove that they're an actual human being. So there's going to be CAPTCHA, verification, and so on. And all of these things actually do add quite a bit of friction. So it is pretty important as a creator to not scare people away either. A lot of people will understand that it's for their own benefit, but actually do hate the idea of having 
to go through like plenty of hoops. Yeah, totally. Just a quick note, Nas, on your point about the trade-off. You know, when you were at Facebook, you actually were really responsible for thinking about these systems at a larger scale for what it takes to bring many, many users onto something. Do you have any philosophical mindset here about what kinds of trade-offs? Because there are always trade-offs that you kind of have to make when it comes to thinking about designing these systems for scale. Yeah, people will look for always the shortest path, the path of least resistance, always. That's just human nature. Yep. And because NFTs are social networks, accessing the social network of NFTs is really no different from accessing Facebook, right? And so if you're making the onboarding to Facebook complex, or, you know, in the case of the system that I worked on, the Novi Wallet, if you're making it too complex, people will actually decide to not join this social network and go for like another system, another platform. Right, and right, so exactly. It's a game of incentives and also a game of education, right? You have to basically educate people proactively. Very clearly explaining all these things to people will bring them with you along in the process. Explaining to them why is it that you do what you are doing? Why is it that you're forcing them to take some steps? And you also have to make it clear that it's a one-time thing and that this is not going to be happening again, but you really have to make that process clear even before they go through the experience that it's for their own benefit, for the community around them, for the friends that they could have also in the community joining them as part of the social network. The only thing that I'll add is, like we mentioned in the beginning, NFTs are images, they're JPEGs, they're videos, very static, right? And I think that as we develop that category of NFTs that are more dynamic and have more functionality other than simply a PFP or an image, I think that the actual smart contract functionality that is going to be required to enable all those new features is also going to be another component of security risk and things that need to be audited, right? So it's not just this initial mint anymore. As we increase the complexity of what these assets can do, that's only going to increase the issue. And you know what? Maybe that has to do with, if you have like an NFT, for example, that in theory, should be non-transferable, but yet it is transferable. That could really ruin a protocol. Or, you know, I think we often talk a lot of times about situations where an NFT could be non-transferable or soul-bound, or an NFT is owned as you would expect it to, only you're allowed to trade it. But imagine a situation on the other end of the spectrum where, of course, we've seen scenarios where you sign a malicious message in MetaMask, and then someone's able to actually swipe NFTs out of your wallet. But at a smart contract level, without even a signed message, if there is a vulnerability in a smart contract that actually allows you to pull or remove an NFT out of someone else's wallet is pretty important. And where this gets really interesting is there's this component of minting NFTs where we always look at provenance and how important that is of who owns what and who transferred what to whom. Mm -hmm. And we assume that when we go on a marketplace and we look at the history of ownership, that it's true and honest. And this is actually from the blockchain. But in reality, under the hood, the way that third-party marketplaces are able to pull that data and display it to you as the user is through, from a technical side, events or event logs that are emitted from the blockchain. And these event logs can be manipulated. And you could have situations where a smart contract mint that you might see on, on a marketplace will show famous influencers are making this NFT. And that someone will look at that and be like, oh my God, this is a really popular NFT. I have to get in on it. I have to buy it. I have to rush. And all of a sudden, it's completely fraudulent. And these people are not actually missing this asset. And it's all just based on smart contract manipulation. And it's just to steal your money. And that's a whole other side of this extra functionality that could be in a smart contract above and beyond the token that could be pretty harmful to users. And we see it happen quite often. I know this is a big topic, but just a quick note before we move on to more. Is there a solution right now? Or is it still being worked out to help prevent that exact scenario you just mentioned? Unfortunately, there actually really isn't a good solution outside of different marketplaces taking the necessary steps to detect these sorts of things. And they are detectable. I did write a vlog about this thing called NFT sleep minting, which has to do with this topic. Mm -hmm. And it's something that a marketplace can detect or a block explorer like Etherscan could detect and display them to the user. So, yeah. Is there anything else you'd add at this level? You know, other nuances evolving the end evolution besides a transition from static to dynamic that Michael was just talking about, Nas, that you would add that, you know, some other aspect, anything we're missing? Yeah, there is like another thing. As we start having these bigger projects that have like several collections to them and the requirements to access a certain drop is basically ownership of assets from the previous collection, 
Ah, say, yeah. I want to meet the mutants, but like the only way for me to mint a mutant ape is if I have a board ape, right? And so one thing that we want to also have is allowing people to keep their assets as much as possible in their cold wallets. And so one thing that I would love to see is more standardization efforts around being able to mint from a hot wallet into a cold wallet that you own. I wish I could applaud. I want to applaud right now. Applaud out loud. Make the sound. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. I'm applauding. <laughs> Insert sound but, effect here. Keep going, Ness. <laughs> but uh, decoupling basically the address that means from the recipient is going to be critical in the future. We really need to start working on standardization efforts around this decoupling because everything that we're doing right now is going to define the way people interact with NFTs in the future, the way people want to access experiences. And right now, there is no decoupling, right? You need to have basically to move, say, your board ape or anything into the wallet that it's going to mint, put it online, do the mint, and potentially do a malicious action, and then send it back to your quote wallet. And so all these things are going to be critical to tackle yeah. in the months to come. Right. And just to be clear, for those who don't know, obviously, like the difference between a hot wallet and a cold wallet, at a high level, obviously, a hot wallet is really the one that's connected to the internet, cold wallet being something that's literally just kind of disconnected and separate. And the best practice is to obviously try to move anything that's valuable and not in frequent rotation or use for like daily activities into your cold wallet as just the default. But not everybody has that level of sophistication, let alone have any of that set up. And what you're arguing, Nas, is that platforms, standards, bodies, various participants, makers, creators can all help these standards come about by simply helping users kind of do this as a best practice by the features and functionality they built. That's correct. And having that as part of the smart contract itself is going to be critical to ensure the best safety of everyone in this space. And I'm talking about minting, but in reality, it's any type of access, any type of action, right? You should be able to stake on behalf of another address. You should be able to access whichever party and events or like unlock certain content. There is going to be more and more actions that you're going to be able to do because you own a specific NFT. Yeah. This is kind of like this idea of token-gated experiences. And so... Decoupling the two is going to be really critical. But the mint is where it starts. This is where we should probably start and we're going to have the easiest way decoupling these two, the addresses that perform the action from the ones that actually store the asset. Wait, not so like, you know how sometimes before the mint, if you go to the smart contract, there are a lot of approvals, like set approval for and things like that. Yeah. Well, just like to give context for anyone who's unaware Part of the ERC-721 standard is the ability for you as a user to delegate another address to transfer your NFT on your behalf, right? So like, I'm just thinking in my head now, I could imagine, let's say, I know I have my cold wallet that I actually want to hold my NFT. Before an NFT mint happens, I'll make a new wallet that's completely detached from everything else. I'd go to the smart contract, pre-approve right, my other wallet to transfer any NFT I own from this contract at a later point in time. And now I can go and mint as usual from an address that might not necessarily even be on a whitelist, as long as what's approved is on the whitelist to transfer later. And then of course, as gas dies down and all this stuff, I can go reclaim that NFT from the correct address and the cold wallet address later on. But like, I don't know, I'm just thinking about that in my head right now. It's a potential method. Yeah, the way I was thinking about it is actually making it a one-time thing. Just like you were just doing an ENS, basically having a single central location where your address can actually say, this other address can do these things for me, including mint, including staking, including some other actions, and doing that as a one-time and for the blockchain to be able to register your preferences and your permission. And it wouldn't necessarily need to be for a contract basis. So like, are you telling me that this weekend we're going to go make the uh, <laughs> minting permissions registry? That is exactly what we're going to work on, Michael. I hope you don't have anything else played. I love it. Live and conceived on air, this new product that will come out right after this podcast. <laughs> I want to just point out something you mentioned very briefly, Nas, like this is useful when you think about token-gated experiences. And the idea again here being there is a way for NFTs to represent so much more. It's community building. It's the ability to unlock experiences in the real world, physical world, as well as online. It could be attending an event. It could be connected to identity. It could be connected to gaming. So what you guys are actually talking about has significance well beyond 
just this kind of wonky question of how do we see exactly. pure so-and-so? I just wanted to underscore that because it's actually quite significant. That's a very good point. I think that gaming is the most important one. Every single project is eyeing towards a form of experiences, digital experiences. You don't want to have your most valuable assets plugged into your computer that is actually running a game, right? That is constantly exchanging information with untrusted networks. Right. Sometimes thousands of players as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you end up in a situation where you need to have this system of permission so that your assets are safe somewhere, but there is some form of delegation of permissions to whichever system you're using to actually perform the actions, perform the interactions with the systems and still enjoy it as a holder, as a stakeholder. Yeah, I agree. So, okay, so really quickly, before we move off the smart contract thing, is there more to say then on what people should, whether it's a person, whether the party is a person, a creator, or a marketplace, or anyone else who's kind of creating interactions between these smart contracts, what else can be done? Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that every single person deploying smart contracts should really seek security expertise in order to perform security audits, especially as you start using as a creator, as you start using a custom logic in your smart contract that is non-standard, it is essential for you to have these things reviewed by experts in the space who can tell you, this is not going to work. There is going to be a bug here and so on. And we've seen NFT drops having big issues. One of them was actually trying to perform a Dutch auction with a last clearing price. And so intending to do the Dutch auction, refund everyone for the difference between whichever bid was made and the last bidding price. And actually, there was a bug at this level. And the entire primary sale ended up being locked within the smart contract. And so it is critical to keep in mind that as creators, you are responsible for not just the tokens, but the money that flows through the smart contract. Do not hesitate to seek security expertise in the space. A lot of people will do it for free. Some of them will expect something in exchange, but it is critical for you to really perform security audits, especially of the parts that are pretty custom and bespoke. Yeah, even if for whatever reason, maybe you can't afford an audit or it's too expensive or the timeline doesn't fit your project's timeline. Like even just the steps of open sourcing your contracts beforehand and letting the community look at them, there's someone nice out there that can point something out to you if there's a problem. That's a wonderful point, because to me, the entire point of this world and movement of Web3 is this democratization of creation. And I like the idea that you don't have to have elite technical knowledge to be able to do certain things. And right now, a lot of this stuff isn't abstracted away in a way that's plug and play for a lot of creators. It sometimes means you have to rely on an existing network. You have to either know smart security folks who can do this, whereas I don't think every single person has access to that. Like, do you think there's going to be a movement where platforms will help provide this or there'll be a whole ecosystem of these services spring up? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you already see this happening. So like Manifold, for example, you don't have to know how to code at all. You can go to their platform. They already have audited, secure, safe, smart contracts for creating a variety of types of NFTs that is very easy for anyone to use. And all you got to do is pay any gas fee on the blockchain to actually do that. But with that said, what Manifold does that's really interesting here is that I know we've been talking about NFTs that have this extended functionality. Well, in the base case, you can go to Manifold and just mint an image, but they also are building the ability for people to have these plug and play extensions that you can tack onto your smart contracts, which are themselves are also audited and actually do this extending of functionality and expand the use case of your NFTs. And this is a sort of user interface that doesn't require any coding knowledge at all. So yeah. you do see it happening very slowly. Well, honestly, it makes me think of the API economy in general and the whole movement, you know, post-Twilio, post-Stripe, because all these things exist in different APIs, builders can essentially create the product they want and focus on their key core skill or creativity or craft because they can draw on all the smartness from the absolute best. Because there's no way, for instance a small retailer in the middle of a particular region has access to necessarily the best coding expertise in the world, but they certainly can access it if they're using like an API from a certain company. And so to me, it's a very democratizing to create and combine all these Lego blocks to essentially make the thing you want. I think that it was Naval that said it best. Open source means that each problem only needs to be solved once. 
right? Oh, that's a great line. It really applies directly to smart contracts. Yeah, yeah. When you're thinking about the type of interactions that you're allowing as a creator between the holder and the smart contract, all these things are problems that need to be solved. And like a lot of people will experiment and try to come up with a solution. Yep. But the open source art really means that people can work together on tackling this problem increasing the safety of this building block, right? Yep. To build this castle of experiences is going to be critical. Totally. The ability to draw on the very best and the community like further hacking away at something is the ethos of Web3. Okay, so these all kind of blend into each other. We talked about the mint and a little bit about the drop. And is there anything to add on the reveal or anything else? Like, do we miss any aspect on the security side that we need to talk about when it comes to the primary sale? So on the on the real side, there are many things there. So first and foremost, there are techniques. It's not really security per se, but it's just preventing, making sure that users have the ability to verify that the creators didn't tamper with the ordering or the attribution mechanisms of the uh, assets themselves, right? The more rare, the most valuable and so on. And so there are some techniques around that. But on the reveal side, we're kind of like stuck with people who basically monitor the mempool for the reveal data, even before this reveal data is available for the users that are just watching marketplaces. So the, the way it works is that within the smart contract, you have a way to look up the metadata associated to any token, any NFT. And Say that it's done with like two phases. So pre-reveal, every single token is going to have the same metadata that is not going to be the final one. And post-reveal, each token is going to have their own metadata, which is going to be final. And so there is this like interesting part in between where the creators are actually publishing the new location, the lookup for the final metadata. So it's basically updating the information on the blockchain to basically say like, hey, now if you want to go look up the data, it's located at this URL. It's so located at this location on or we on IPFS, on uh, web servers and so on. And so there is like an interesting race condition that is happening there, which is the creators, when they publish it, this information is actually available for miners, basically, and people monitoring the mempool. But because it is not on the blockchain, it is not published, it is not available to anyone except the people who are monitoring the mempool. Interesting. And so there is this critical moment where some actors actually gain information about the revealed data before everyone else and can potentially scoop things that are for sale still like unrevealed on the marketplace. And so we also need to improve the security of this mechanism. And do you have like a one-line summary of what the solution there is? So actually, there is no like really right answer. The right answer is often time to, uh, to actually either reveal the information separately from the blockchain and try to make it available to everyone, not through a blockchain, but actually make it available through websites and so on. And then transition after the metadata is revealed, transition to this blockchain so that like people can know ahead of time what they have without it being available first to the miners, right, the right. people looking at the mempool, but to make it available to everyone at the same time. Which also then takes care of the asymmetry problem of the information, as well as the ability for bots and people watching that detail that is not revealed to the marketplaces and trying to arbitrage that. That makes so much sense. Exactly. Michael, is there anything more that you would add on the drop reveal mint side before we move on to the secondary part? Yeah, right after... The reveal, right? So now you have all these assets that are revealed and everyone's enjoying them and everyone's loving to look at their board apes and, and whatnot. And it's all happy and it's all great. We still have to remember that this media file, this image, this metadata is stored not on the blockchain for the most part. It's stored on some other decentralized, hopefully decentralized storage solution. And this is more of like a philosophical idea than a security thing, but it could very well be a security thing where I think this idea that blockchains are immutable has created the illusion that NFTs are immutable and uh, images are immutable. Yeah. When re in reality, most of the time, if not all the time, I don't even know why this idea that NFT images should be immutable has ever even been a thing because for the most part, I don't think it's ever been the case, is that the creator of a smart contract does have the ability, unless they program it otherwise, to update where this media is stored off-chain or at least like change 
where the token ID points to off-chain. Maybe they want it to point to a centralized server. Maybe they want to point to a dive DFS or Arweave. And when you think about that the creator does actually have that ability, and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is for another discussion, there's certainly a component of risk there from two sides. One, it's the ability for a creator to completely change everything. Like you could imagine I do my NFT project and then one day I decide to change the images to all be a smiley face and say goodbye. Like that's totally something that I can do and nobody would be able to stop me. That's the negative side. But the positive side of being able to actually change this metadata later on is because, listen, this space is so new. It's developing every day. We don't know what's going to be the best decentralized storage mechanism. We don't know what new ones, what might come out. We don't know what servers might crash and go down. So let's say, for example, Board Ape holders' assets were on a centralized server. They're not. They're on IPFS, but just saying as an example, if they were, and that server goes down, well, I would imagine that all holders would very much want the creators of the project to change that metadata to be on something like IPFS or Arweave, where the asset might be up again or viewable so the person can see the NFT artwork in their wallet and enjoy it, right? So the mutability of the metadata or the token URI of the media file is definitely an area of security risk, but also just an area to think about when you're looking at projects and, and something to look into. I'm also hearing you say that it's early days. These things will evolve. We'll figure some of it out. But I'm also hearing the underlying idea here. It's just also kind of an opportunity because both of you guys have alluded to this idea that NFTs are, we're in the static phase, but as we see more and more dynamic NFTs and things change, it's almost like that can actually be a feature, not a bug. Because honestly, I thought of the example of Banksy when you were talking, Michael, and that famous self-destructed, you know, shredding painting that ended up actually being worth more later on. And I'm not caring about this because of the value, but because it was actually a piece of performance art that this thing could be pointing to something different, essentially, from what the person had bought. And that was actually part of the performance of that art. I just want to applaud again because I agree. Yeah, (laughs) it's early days and there's this idea of dynamic NFTs or updating metadata. It's important and you never know when your NFT might gain a new superpower one day that might be important for something, whatever it is. I think the ability to, to add some bit of flexibility is is incredibly important, especially as literally every day something changes in the space. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also about harnessing what's native about blockchains versus just simply imitating real life in the blockchain. So let's go to the next level. On secondary sales, we've covered, just a recap so far, we covered the art, we've covered smart contracts, we've covered drops, mints, reveals, more post activities you just mentioned. We talked about bots, we talked about token gating briefly, we talked about the primary sale, as a category. Now, is there anything more to be said on the secondary and onward sales and security? Yeah, I just want to bring back a topic that I started talking on before, at least when it comes to secondary marketplace security, which is this idea of NFT sleep minting, where you can see that a marketplace might display a lot of activity around a specific NFT and famous people minting it, when in reality, they're not. And someone is just using clever smart contract tactics to bait you into thinking that this is a popular new mint. I did write a blog on that already about NFT sleep minting, but that's definitely a major security issue when it comes to secondary marketplaces. Great. Anything to add, Nas? I would touch on the whole phishing aspect of things. Great. Tell me what is different about phishing with like phishing as we know it today and like email and elsewhere and NFT phishing. That's what I really want to know. So the interesting part is that oftentimes for the uh, traditional phishing, the attackers are actually going to request information from you instead of action. Whereas in the Web3 space, it tends to be more the action part that is primary. Interesting. Because at the end of the day, the secret information about yourself in the Web3 space tends to be your private key, right? And so instead of asking you for your private key, uh, which is obvious, people will just ask you to perform an action that seemingly is non-malicious, but actually is. And so... The thing that is required here is actually a work together of many parties. You basically need the users to be educated and to be uh, very careful about their actions, especially now that there is no kind of like safety net for them, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think about you interacting with your banks or other systems that say keep your assets, ACH debit transfers were actually reversible up to three days after they were done. Like that's right. That's a huge time window. But if you think about the blockchain, none of it is. Right. And so 
I think it's very critical for users to take the steps to be very proactive about their own operational security, which I did like a tweet storm about all the stuff that needs to be done. But I would summarize it as create Chrome profiles. I think it's very important to have a dedicated environment for your browsing and communications, et cetera. And another one that is dedicated to performing actions on the blockchain. And the two should never cross path. Your MetaMask should be on a completely different Chrome profile. And the reason for this is that actually the ID standpoint where the Chrome actually has a very strong isolation from a data and code execution perspective that is native to it. And so having very different environments, strongly isolated environments is a very important one. Another one is move things to a cold wallet as much as you can. Hardware wallets and so on are really important to have and keep as offline as possible. And the third one that people don't really think so much about is don't instead to use burner accounts, actually. Most of the wallets these days allow you to just with a single click, create a new account. And so all you have to do is just funding this account, perform whichever action you think is non-malicious, but at least you can have like isolate the blast radius to this specific new account with just the money that you put in. Right. And it's not going to put in jeopardy the rest of your asset. Think of these burners almost as like the space chamber that is basically being used to isolate the spaceship. And you have like this chamber that potentially basically get everything sucked into the void. Right. But at least it's segmented and isolated to this. Then there is the wallet part. Think of wallets as the browsers. If you think about a browser as like a way to access internet and various networks, that are full of interested parties. The wallets are the interface between you and the world of Web3. And with that, helping you adopt by default the best and most secure behaviors, right? My phone or Chrome and other pieces of software are really here to tell me, okay, what are the permissions that I'm giving away? I'm allowing it to use my microphone, my webcam, I'm allowing it to perform fetch information from my keychain, cryptographic sensitive materials, and so on. Right. Only access location while using the app. Exactly. And so if you think about it, the wallets are no different. You actually hand over permissions on the blockchain through set approval for all calls, giving allowances for protocols and contracts to move funds on your behalf, fungible or non-fungible assets. And so the wallet should be able to tell you, hey, here are all the permissions that you've given. Hey, these permissions, you actually didn't set an expiration. You should probably add one. And then it should be able to do more than that. It should even be able to simulate the consequences of a transaction even before the networks receives the transaction. So that you know, even before submitting anything or even signing it, that it is a malicious piece of content. So wallets are going to really develop into safety and even potentially like privacy preserving layers for you in the future. That's fantastic. Earlier, you mentioned this trade-off essentially about what it means to build something at scale. And a lot of what you just described when it came to the wallet security that makers and builders can do to help users, marketplaces can do, wallet makers can do. Is there anything lost in the abstraction layer that comes with more usability? Because you know, there's a classic false framing, I guess, between usability and security here. But do you have a point of view there about trading off that usability and security? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of it is going to require standardization of interfaces, standardization of actions. And so we're probably going to lose a little bit of creativity and just wiggle room in terms of what you can do as a creator or as someone who designed the protocol for NFTs. But ultimately, the positive stuff that you get out of it really far outweighs, I would say, the negative. Because when you start standardizing more of these interactions, you basically allow deeper introspection from third parties. If you have more standardization around the type of action that are allowed by a smart contract, it's going to remove a lot of complexity for the wallet to basically be able to say like, okay, I'm going to scan this protocol. Okay, this thing is known, this thing is known, this thing is not known. Mark it as an alert. This thing is known, this thing is known, this thing is known. It's going to be almost like a reference game in terms of what is known and what is the sensitivity or the criticality of each one of these building blocks that are not part of standards, it will allow wallets to provide deeper 
insight into the sensitivity of actions that are being performed by the users, therefore helping them make better educated decisions. And so it really feels no different from iOS, really, because the operating system has a set of permissions and the set of actions that the applications are allowed to do and gated by specific standard permissions that are called iOS entitlements. And so having more standardization will remove a little bit more on the flexibility side, but bring a lot more from a security standpoint. Yeah, that's great. So I want to pick up on some really interesting trends and looking ahead that we've talked about, which is you guys touched briefly on dynamic NFTs as being a really promising idea. We touched on identity. We touched on token-gated experiences and the role of NFTs in this. Where else are some of the most interesting things, either near-term or on the horizon, that are promising or interesting areas of work, especially when security can unlock things there? Yeah, so a few things that I'm super excited about are adoption of NFTs by institutions, you know, custody solutions and custody providers to start supporting more and more of these NFTs and use cases that come with these NFTs, especially as they start allowing you to claim additional assets and access to various experiences. I really believe that institutions should also be parties to that, just like they were for the regular crypto movement and then DeFi after that and so on. One other thing that I'm also super excited about is you know, the aspect of NFTs that really change with you because it actually defines the social branches around you and social subgraph that like, you start joining. And so I believe that having NFT that can actually change with you as you evolve will be critical, actually. If you think about social networks such as Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and so on, you tend to associate the entire network to the subgraph that you actually have on these networks, whether that's your family on Facebook, it can be work relationship on Twitter, crypto Twitter, and it's going to be like NFT Twitter. Right. And so I think that it's very important as we kind of like start defining these NFTs as the social bridges to have them be able to evolve with you. Whether that's visual, whether that's in the information that they actually hold, the type of experiences that they provide. And I believe that we're going to go beyond just images and we're going to start going into NFTs that are themselves interactive, right? So you pick up like Web 1, Web 2, Web 3. Web 1 would be static PFPs. Web 2 start being dynamic PFPs, which are starting to come up. And then the equivalent of the Web 3 would be like a very deep level of interactions with the NFT itself, whether it's like rich media content, whether that's a different format, it could be like applications, right? But just like starting having NFTs that are very unique for you as an individual, but still evolve with you over time is going to be pretty critical. It's like NFTs, not just a social network, as you said earlier, but actually NFTs as representation of identity. But even beyond that, NFTs as evolution. Exactly. When I initially told you about the NFT stack, the actual final rung of token gating is the area that is the most underexplored. Everyone's focused right now on just minting and trading NFTs. But how are you going to use these things in the future? And I think there are so many components that are excited about them. And I'll rapid fire all the ones that I believe in. Great. Lightning round. Go. So like for starters, you know, DeFi and NFTs. Talk about like gaming NFTs and how does that relate to DeFi? Well, you could see a situation where you might actually rent an NFT. And renting an NFT presents a lot of interesting problems with ownership. Like how do you actually transfer an asset to somebody else to use in a game without them running away with it on a blockchain, right? And it's actually a very challenging thing to discover and how smart contracts or smart contract wallets interact or, or staking pools for renting NFT. That's like one area. Another area is layer two NFTs and, and how NFTs might be moved across chain, right? So for example, maybe you don't necessarily want to move your board ape to another chain because its provenance is on Ethereum mainnet. But if there was ever to be some sort of game that you wanted to like leverage your board ape, well, do you really need to like transfer the asset across chain? Or could you just represent your ownership of the asset on another chain? Of course, that's great for simpler assets, but for more complicated assets that are composable with other elements in the ecosystem, those are almost impossible to move across chain. So that's another area. Right. What is the significance of cross-chain NFTs? Like, why should someone even care to do that? So like, you could basically be able to do a lot of transactions with your token or your asset or your NFT on another chain. That's a lot cheaper and a little bit more scalable. 
But again, like I said, there's a lot of implications there for tracking provenance and how things would move around. And then to me, I think the future of all of this stuff, and this is what we talked about, is an NFT is right now this composition of metadata off-chain, and it's actually not very composable. A smart contract can determine if you own a board ape, but it cannot determine if your board ape has gold fur, right? It's not very, right. it's not very granular. And you can imagine a situation where you have this non-transferable NFT in your wallet that sort of represents your decentralized profile. And this profile could have things like preferences, like Nas said earlier, dark mode and light mode. They could have things like your status, your relationship status. Your, obviously, your profile picture could be one of them. It could be a series of connected wallets, like Nas mentioned earlier, for being able to delegate minting to other things, right? And all of a sudden, you could have this NFT that you can take from application to application. Each application would ingest all of this data about you and then basically allow you to customize the front-end user experience. I mean, think about decentralized social media. Imagine that you had an NFT where you specified how the Twitter algorithm displayed to you tweets. And when you logged into Twitter and connected your wallet, Twitter would then recognize your preference and then display the tweets to you in the order in which you specified, right? Like that's a super powerful idea that doesn't exist in the current state because you don't actually own your own data. Whereas if you had an NFT in your wallet that had all your preferences, you do own your own data, right? And what's interesting about this type of NFT, and this is where I think a lot of NFTs are going to go, especially when we think about the world being run on this stuff, right? A very small component of it is going to be, you know, speculative JPEGs. It's going to be NFTs that can be used. And these are NFTs that are, they're non-transferable. They're very, very stateful. They're very composable. And they're also not necessarily limited. Like in theory, everybody should have one of these, right? There's not only 10K of them. Yes. Right. And the current example that exists today, that is almost like the first iteration of all of this is ENS, right? It is sort of like your decentralized profile. So where I see a lot of this going is a lot of the next phase of NFTs is going to be this leveraging the identity, composability, and then this ultra stateful nature that an NFT can have at a smart contract level in order to move throughout the ecosystem and compose with other protocols. So that's sort of where I see it going forward. That's my ramble. It's not a ramble. I loved it. And in fact, I'm going to give you the last word, Michael. No, yeah, I was going to say thanks so much. This was an absolute blast. I love this topic and time to keep building this stuff and innovating and this is only the start. It's really been a year since NFTs took off and it's really just scratching the surface. So thank you for joining and we'll have many more conversations. Thank you so much. There are just so many amazing things happening right now in NFTs, so many more things to build, you know, in the space. This is the first of many conversations. Thank you so much for joining you guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a 6 zcryptocom This episode was produced and edited by Sonal Troxy. That's me. The episode was technically edited by our audio editor, Justin Golden, with Seven Morris. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art. And all thanks to support from a 6 and Z Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us, and resources from others, be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go.